Oh, good morning. The background to our psalm that we are studying this morning is an individual who just couldn't wait to be king. I got to admit, I like that term king. I like the rings of it. Who wouldn't want to be king? In fact, every now and then at our house, my wife will ask me what I think of a situation or what I think should be done. And my first line always is, well, if I was king. As a king, no one tells you what to do. And as a king, you don't care what anybody else thinks. You just do it. And so I say, if I was king, here's what I would do. King has a nice ring to it. Some people have to wait longer to become kings than others. Uh, probably the monarchy we're most familiar with is the British monarchy. In fact, uh, Pastor Kevin this morning is over in England as he is doing some education, fit furthering his degree, and so that's why I'm here. And I'm just glad to be here. But yeah, he's there in the midst of, of the British monarchy. And the, actually, the youngest individual ever to become king in the British monarchy was King Henry VI. And 1422 was crowned at the age of nine months. Now that is a, that is a early start. I can imagine the, the first meeting around the table, goo goo gaga, you know, things like that. <laughs> interestingly, interestingly enough, though, the record, the record for the longest wait in the British monarchy, from the time you were declared heir apparent to the time where you uh, are are crowned, is actually still being added to each day right now. Prince Charles has been waiting to be crowned king since he was first uh, three, uh, three and a half years old when his mom became queen. He became the heir apparent. He's been waiting as of today, 63 years, four months and 15 days. The longest to wait. The previous record was about 59 years. So he's four years past that. And unfortunately, his mom, the queen, is only 89 years old and her mom lived to be 101. So he still could have a long way to go if she doesn't abdicate. But, you know, sometimes we, we just have to wait. And Prince Charles has done a little better, better job of waiting than the king that we're going to look at this morning. In fact, his name, the king that couldn't wait to be king, is Absalom. Absalom, the Old Testament. He was probably 30 to 35 years old when he decided he should be king. He was, um, what's the word for it? I think the, the word that historians would use to describe Absalom was that he is a hunk. He was sharp. He was um, <clears throat> good looking. Something that Prince Charles has never been accused of. No, I'm, well, what does that mean? <laughs> I'm sorry. Now, he was good looking. In fact, the Bible tells us that in 2 Samuel 14, 26. It says, now Absalom was praised as the most handsome man in all Israel. He was flawless from head to foot. How would you like to be flawless from head to foot? He was a good looker. And it goes on and tells us in the Bible, he had long flowing hair and they would actually cut it once a year and they would weigh it. And it was like 30 shekels or something like 4.4 pounds that his hair would be. He was a, a good looking guy and he's not always good looking. He was very skilled. He was out and he was, he would work with the people. He was, a, he was a great politician. He was the baby kisser. You know, he'd go around and he would, he'd, he'd befriend the people and he would do all things. You can read all about this in second Samuel and we won't have time to read all of that, but he was, he was a man of the people. 
And so he was ready to be king. There was just one problem. Can you guess what that is? There was already a king. (laughs) There was already a king in place. And Absalom wanted to be king. And the king was not just any king. He was King David. God's chosen king. The chosen one to lead the people of Israel. And so Absalom knew to dethrone King David. He would need to rally the people's support. He would need to not only conquer, but he would need to get rid of, to kill David. There's one other thing I forgot to tell you. David was also Absalom's father. So son Absalom is out to kill his dad. Did I say happy Father's Day? (laughs) Happy Father's Day. I don't know, you know, you that are fathers here and even you that are mothers. And, you know, I, I know relationships with children and parents at times can be a little rocky. But hopefully this morning as you're sitting here, um, You don't have a child that's quite this angry or quite this at this point where he wants to kill you. But that's what David was looking at. That's what Absalom was going to do. And so we pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 15, the background to our psalm. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 13. It says this, A messenger soon arrived in Jerusalem to tell David, All Israel has joined Absalom in a conspiracy against you. Probably not the news David was hoping to hear that day. Not a good day. Absalom had used his persuasion, his cunningness, his, his, his trickery to rally the people and convince them that they were better off with him king than with David king. David responds in the very next verse. He says, then we must flee at once or it will be too late. David urged his men, hurry, if we get out of the city before Absalom arrives, both we and the city of Jerusalem will be, despair, will be spared from disaster. So David was concerned, not just for himself, but he was concerned about the people around him, those who served him, his supporters. And he's also concerned about Jerusalem. And he says, if this is what it comes to, let's go. So he said, hurry, Let's get out of here before he arrives. He's on his way. We got to do this quickly. And so down into verse 30, 2 Samuel 15 says this. David walked up the road to the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and his feet were bare as a sign of mourning. And the people who were with him covered their heads and wept as they climbed the hill. The great monarchy, the reign of David, God's chosen leader, this was the low point, certainly, of his reign. The chosen king, hunted by his son, forced out of the palace, forced out of Jerusalem, Weeping and mourning, headed out into the wilderness, not knowing where he was going to sleep, what he was going to eat, if he was going to live. 
at that point or somewhere around that point as David had a chance to reflect on what was happening, he writes these words in Psalm chapter 3, our psalm for today. Psalm chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he writes, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. We know for sure that this is the occasion of this psalm because if you look in your Bibles, you see a title that was given to this psalm. And it's, it simply says, a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. All because Absalom couldn't wait to be king. We call this a psalm of lament. It starts out with David lamenting the condition that he's in, the circumstances. It can be a personal lament, or it could be a corporate lament. It could be the position that where, what I am in. It could be what the country's in. It could be what God's people are in. But it's a psalm of lament. Psalms of lament make up almost half of the psalms, believe it or not. You start reading through and you find lament after lament after lament. Lament there is defined as to express sorrow, mourning, or regret, often demonstratively. It's it's, it's to express your despair, your anger, your doubts, your protests. You're just ticked off. And you want to tell God that. And we see it again, as I mentioned, over and over and over and over again in the Psalms is, is I think especially artists and psalmists, songwriters, have that way of taking what hurts, of taking our disappointments, the tragedies, and put them into words. David, just a few Chapters later in Psalm, in 13.1, writes this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? A few chapters later, Psalm 22.1, he says this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very words used by Jesus on the cross. Crying out in in lament. But it wasn't just David. Also in in Job. You know that story of Job? Job loses everything. He loses his his money. He loses his family. He loses his health. And in Job chapter 3.26, he says, I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest. Only trouble comes. Job laments. In fact, lament is such a big part of the Bible, we have a whole book named Lamentations. Read through it if you want to get depressed. But you should read through it. It's people expressing their their laments, their, their, their hurts to God. And it the two verses from the end, Lamentations 5.20 says this, Why do you continue to forget us? Why have you abandoned us for so long? And so we see these people throughout the Bible lamenting their position, lamenting what's going on and what's happening in their lives. But, you know, people 
aren't much different today or any different than they were back then. We have our laments. We lament all the time. And in fact, we even name our laments. I'll try a few out on you. The drive. Football fans, huh? The fumble. The move. The shot. The decision. I don't know what it was this year. Was it the shoulder or was it the knee? What is it? He said, ah, those are sports. Well, we name other ones too. How about 9-11? Sandy Hook. Pearl Harbor. Oklahoma City. Katrina. Columbine. And one really close to home, Chardon. We have these tragedies in our lives. Tragedies as a nation, and we name them because we lament over what happened. And it continues. This week, our nation, we lamented over what happened in Charleston, South Carolina. Three days ago on Christianity Today website, there was an article posted. And it, the title of it was Laments for Charleston. And we understand what it means to lament and to cry out. To say, why? Have you left us? Have you forgotten us? We lament for Charleston. I know I've lamented. I've lamented for those nine precious lives that were lost. I've lamented for the families who had their loved ones taken from them. I lamented that a sacred place became a killing field. More than that, I've lamented the condition of the human heart that could have so much hate. I've lamented that in 2015, we as a nation still struggle with racism. And I've lamented that we as a church, globally, nationally, have not done more to speak out and to, and to speak into this hatred. And to offer something that's better and a reality centered in God and His love. The laments have come from everywhere, and there's quotes all over, but here's one from Jennifer Bailey. She is an AME minister and founder of Faith Matters Network. She says this, Nine people are dead today, and I am angry. I have no doubt the anger I fear is righteous. My God is one who stands on the side of those who are marginalized and oppressed. My God is not docile and is big enough to hold my anger, frustrations, and questions. I think Jennifer knew what David knew. God is big enough to handle our cries. God is big enough for us to say, God, where are you? God is big enough to handle our anger and our frustration and our desperation. For if God isn't, I think David is in a lot of trouble. <laughs> and certainly the writer of Lamentations is in a lot of trouble. If God can't handle our crying out to him, or how long, lords? Or why are, why are we forsaken? Why did you forget us? Why can't we win a championship? 
Why, Lord? Why? In David's case, Absalom was rebelling against him. He was pushing to kill him. The walls of David's life in his kingdom were falling apart. Absalom had deceived and charmed a nation to follow him. And now, rather than a king in a palace, David was a fugitive on the run. And we come back to those words in Psalm chapter 3, verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. First of all, David sees that he has foes. And David knows all about foes. He's a warrior. and He knows uh, foes are there to defeat and to destroy. And he says, how many? He says, my foes are increasing. They are increasing. Everywhere he looks, he's got problems. He keeps getting bad news after bad news and it's worse news. And you know what it's, that's, you know what that's like. You know what it's like to have bad news and then to get worse news. It's like the guy who, who got a phone call from his doctor. And the doctor says, well, I've been looking at your test results. And he says, well, tell me. He says, well, doctor says there's, there's bad news and there's worse news. He says, well, doctor, tell me the bad news first. He says, the bad news is your test results say you have 24 hours to live. He says, well, what's the worst news? He says, I tried to call you yesterday. So, the, worst, the news just keeps getting worse. It's bad news. And it was bad news on every angle. Bad news on every angle for David. Think of the crises that David's facing. And there are many of the same crises that you face, that I face. The first crisis that he's facing is a family crisis, isn't he? I think when your son is trying to kill you, that qualifies as a family crisis. But David's, David here is facing a family crisis. His son is trying to kill him. But it's not just that. If we read further back in the story, why is there this anger between Absalom and David? It's because David's other son, a half-brother to Absalom, raped Absalom's sister, Tamar. And David knew about it and did nothing about it. Absalom's anger burned for two years, the Bible tells us, before he finally got a chance to kill his brother who had raped Tamar. And then David did nothing about that. And so here's David sitting back and saying, boy, I'm really enjoying being a king and not doing the things that a father and a leader should do. And Tamar and, and Absalom says, I can do better than that. And he convinced the people he could do better than that. A family crisis. We deal with family crises all the time, don't we? I don't know what our family crisis or your family crisis might be this morning. It might be a parent crisis. It might be a child crisis. It might be a spouse crisis. It might be an aunt and uncle crisis. But we have crises in our family. And sometimes we just have to cry out to God and say, God, you know about it. You know the situation. It's frustrating. It's disgusting. It's, it's beyond my doing. But God, I'm going to cry out and I'm going to tell you about it. You know, he also had a financial crisis. Do you realize he was foreclosed on? <laughs> he, he, he was evicted from his house. He was told he had to get up and leave and get up and leave now. That means you can't take stuff with you. Uh, you, you know, you can't take all the gold. You're going to carry what you can carry. The furniture had to stay behind. His wealth was gone. He was walking out into the wilderness with virtually none of his possessions. It's a financial crisis. How many here? 
How many in the worship center? How many around here in Northeast Ohio are facing financial crisis? How many people have had a crisis with their mortgages? How many people have crisis with their cars? How many people have crisis with their jobs? A financial crisis. And sometimes we just cry out and say, God, I can't take it anymore. God, why have you forsaken me? God, and, and, and God's big enough to hear our frustration. God's big enough to hear our cry. He's also got a physical crisis. David is probably with Social Security age about now, somewhere between 60 and 70, and he's going out into the wilderness. Now, I'm not quite that old, but I, I, like David, I've had a desk job for a lot of years. Now, when he wasn't no longer being a, a warrior, he was sitting in the palace enjoying it. I, I imagine he's a little out of shape probably, and, and maybe not ready to, to walk through the wilderness and hide in the caves and do this again. He says, boy, this is going to be rough. Some of us are facing physical crisis. It might not be running, and, but it might be, it might be a disease. It might be a sickness, whatever it may be. But we come to God and we say, God, I can't believe I'm in this situation. I can't believe our family members are in this situation. God, is there anything you can do? We cry out. We lament. And finally, I think David has a significant spiritual crisis here. And here's why. I think David is filled with regret. I think David is filled with guilt. And blaming of himself. And how many of us do that? Do you know, David had a good reason to have regret and self blame himself because he really did bring it on himself. If you read further back to the story, you realize that David's life was pretty smooth. David's life was pretty good. Until one day he decided that he was going to disobey God's commandments and he was going to take another man's wife to be his own. To complicate that... The wife, that woman became pregnant. To complicate that, he went out and had her husband murdered. When the prophet Nathan came to him, confronted him about the situation, the Lord said this through the prophet in 2 Samuel 12, 10 and 11. From this time on, your family will live by the sword. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. How could David not look in the mirror and not say, I brought this on myself? And I know, I know in my life there have been times where I thought, you know, if I would have just done that differently, if I would have just reacted differently, if I would have done this, I brought it on myself. Many times we know we're living with the consequences of sin, much like David, because we brought it on ourselves. And so we cry out and lament, God, I'm frustrated because it's my fault. And we lament. And that's what David was doing, I believe. I believe he had a serious spiritual crisis. But not only did he have many foes, his foes were increasing. His foes were increasing, but they were also active. Look at that next part of that verse. Many are rising against me. So not only are the foes increasing, but they're, they're getting ready for action. They're rising. You know, we don't know a lot of times where the next crisis is coming from, where the next foe is. And sometimes those crises and foes come from unexpected sources. Sometimes they come from expected sources. Suffering usually comes unexpectedly. We're not saying, I think, well, today's Thursday. Today was the day I think I was supposed to suffer. No, something happens. Something unexpected happens. Maybe it come from someone unexpectedly. Someone we really didn't expect to hurt us. But they're active. They're rising up.
they are increasing and they're active. And that's enough to get you frustrated. That's enough to lament. But David then turns to something else to lament. And this is the one that I can maybe deal with and understand a lot. He says this in verse 2. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. I sometimes can deal with the events, but it's the commentators that really bug me. (laughs) Many are saying... You know, during these last playoffs, the basketball playoffs, I would look at Facebook and see the complaints that people were writing there. And they usually weren't complaints about the players. They usually weren't complaints about the, the uh, uh, coaches. Not even that many, although there were complaints about the referees. But they were complaints about the commentators. They hate us. They hate, they hate Cleveland. <laughs> you know, we, we just don't really appreciate what the commentators have to say. But there are always commentators. There are always hecklers. There are always haters that want to speak into your life, especially when you're going through a difficult time. Again, look at the Bible. When Job was suffering, where'd he go? He went to some friends. Wow. Read through the book of Job. The friends are saying things like, well, you must really be a bad guy. God would never do that to a good guy. You must have really sinned. Job went to his wife. You know what his wife said? (laughs) Curse God and die. The commentators, don't listen to them. The haters, don't listen to them. There's another book in the Bible. It's called Nehemiah. A story about Nehemiah who who got a a, a burden and then expressed a lament that the wall around the city of Jerusalem was in disrepair. And so he got permission to go and to rebuild it. He grabbed, again, a ragtag group to come and they started rebuilding the walls and, and the hecklers came out. They said, whew, that's some wall that is. That wall ain't going to hold nothing. Ain't going to hold nothing. That's the way hecklers talk. (laughs) One heckler in chapter 4 said this. He said, you know what? Nehemiah, if a fox comes up and runs up on that wall, it's going to fall down. Thank you for your kind support. Jesus had his haters, didn't he? Who's he having meals with? Who's he running around with? The commentators. Look at his disciples. What are they eating and drinking? Now, John, he had real disciples. (laughs) You know, this party and stuff. Jesus, you can't forgive sins. Only God can do that. The commentators are out there saying what you can't do. The haters are saying you can't. You can't. About 10 miles west of where I'm standing right now, six miles, seven miles as the crow flies, is a place called the Ginn Academy. The Ginn Academy was begun by uh, the, uh, I guess, legendary football coach Ted Ginn of Glenville High School. Is an academy set up for young men, and it's for especially for those at-risk young men. And it's to prepare them for life, just to give them structure, to give them hope, to give them a mentor every day, 24 hours a day if they need them. And it was open in about 2007, 2008, and, and young men have been going through the Ginn Academy, and they've been getting, given hope, and they've been given structure. 
Unfortunately, during that time, if you know the story, Coach Ginn contracted pancreatic cancer. And he was in the hospital and treatments for a couple years and was very sick. And he's outlived expectations. He's in the, right now he's in the percentage of where very few people live now. But he's, he's back coaching and he's talking about what he went through. And he's talking about what he went through. He says, during those two years where I couldn't coach and where I was, I was hung up and I, you know, just laid, laid up and I couldn't, I couldn't do things that I wanted to do. He said, I, I thought a lot. I prayed a lot. I talked to Jesus a lot. I listened a lot. And he says, I started to, I started to see and hear and, and know that there were things that I needed to change in my program. There were, some, there were some program changes I need to make. There were some people changes I need to make. There were some structural changes I need to make. And he talks about how, how God just seemed to speak to him about these changes. But he says, but you know what really struck me? God, God, God just put in my head about what, what I call the danger, the danger of hearing. That's his term, the danger of hearing. Listen to what Ted Ginn has to say about the danger of hearing. He says this, every day, some of these kids hear they won't make it. It's every day. You come from a home with no father, you won't make it. You come from the wrong neighborhood, you won't make it. Over and over, they are told why they won't make it. Some of these kids face problems at home, and they begin to hear the voice of the haters who want to pull them down. The haters tell you what you can't do. Or what God can't do or will not do. You see, when they are making statements like they do in Psalm 2, that there is now so, no salvation for God in Him, they are making as much a commentary about, about uh, David's God as they are about David. They're saying God won't do it for you. Either God won't or God can't. The haters speak out. So... David comes to a point. He's been lamenting. And, and you know, this is a short lament. This is only two verses. You start reading through Psalms, you see some much longer laments. But I didn't think we could take any more than two verses today. David's lamenting. And he says, okay, I see. I know what I see. I see around me all these problems, all these issues, all these foes, all these increasing foes. And with my ears, ears, I hear. I hear what they're saying. So I see and I hear. But now he comes to what he knows. To what he knows. There are so many times in our life we get bogged down by what we see and what we hear. And we've got to remember and stop and reflect on what we know. Verse 3 and 4 of Psalms chapter 3, he says this. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried out to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. That Selah is a musical term. It just means pause and reflect. But here he's in this, in this musical piece that he's putting together. He says, I've, I've, seen, I've seen the problems. I've seen the mess. I've seen the crisis. I've heard all the commentators. I've heard all the haters. Now what do I know? I know, God, you are my shield. I know, God, you will not abandon me. I know, God, you will protect me. That's what a shield does. A shield protects us in the midst of all this mess we're going through. And he says, God, you are my shield. I know it. Maybe he knows what God knows. We are given just a glimpse of the shield in Job chapter 1. 
Why did Job have these problems? Well, it was because God and, and Satan were having a conversation. And Satan had come to God and said, and God had pointed out to him, hey, did you, did you check out Job? Sharp guy. A hunk. No, God didn't call him a hunk. A righteous guy. He loves me. And you know what Satan's response was? It's in Job 1, 9 and 10. Satan replied to the Lord, yes, but God, but Job has a good reason to fear God. You have always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You have put a wall of protection. You have put a shield. You will protect him. And David knew that. David knew that God was his shield. It's all through Psalms. You see God as a shield and a protector all through the book. He says, I know it. God will protect me. He will have his hedge around me. He is a shield about me. And then again, in Psalm, in Psalm 3 there, it says, not only is he shield about me, but he is the lifter of my head. The lifter of my head. He says, I know that my eyes cannot continue to be on the things that I see. Because when I look and I'm looking down, all I see is the mess around me. He said, God, you need to lift my head. I need to look up. I need to see you at work and not the crisis around me. I need to see your glory and not the junk in my life. I need to see your power. And I can only do that when I'm lifting it up. And he says, not only, I don't even have to do it. God will lift up my head. I think he probably, if he hadn't seen this written already, there's another psalm. We don't know who wrote it, but it's Psalm 121. Just, Just listen to these words. I lift up my eyes to the mountain. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. But look up. Look up, your, look up to the Lord where your help comes from. Remember this. Remember this. Your outlook is determined by your uplook. Your outlook is determined by your uplook. Your perspective, when your head is hanging, when we are left in our laments, we have to get past the lament. When we are left in them, we, we're looking down, we're stuck. But when we look up, our perspective changes. We see things from God's view. And our outlook is determined by our uplook. He goes on. He says in verse 3, 5, and 6, or chapter 3, 5, and 6, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. No wonder he could sleep. The the psalmist in 121 says, God never sleeps. So let him do the, (laughs) let him do the worry. Let him do the work. I can sleep. David said, I am running out in the wilderness. I'm going to be sleeping in caves. I I, also know that there's, there's not a Holiday Inn Express out there. We're going to have to, we're going to have to rough it. But I slept. I lay down. I slept. He gave me sweet peace. He gave me rest. I woke the Lord sustained me. And so I will not be afraid. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me. God, he says, I, I see, I hear, but here's what I know. I know God is my shield. I know God is my protector and I know he lifts my head. 
And I know He gives me rest. And He will do it. And so He ends with His request. Simple two sentence, or two verse request. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You broke the teeth of the wicked. You might notice if you're following along this morning, I'm using a little different version than normal. It's the English Standard Version because of this verse. Um, it, it translates it a little differently and it's because it's a hard verse to translate. Some of your verses may say, hey God, kick them in the teeth. <laughs> it's kind of like that. It's, it's almost, it looks like it's a command. And, I, and really it's not a command. This is, this is a past tense. It's David saying, I know you could save me because I know you can strike my enemies down. I've seen you do it. You have done that. You have stricken, struck my enemies on the cheek. You break their teeth. And then he goes on, verse 8, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. Selah. What's, what's so neat about this? Those words in uh, 7 and 8, Save me, O God, and salvation belongs to the Lord. That, the words salvation and save are the very same word that was used in verse 2 by the haters. When they said, God cannot save you. God cannot bring you salvation. And he turns around and he says, guess what? Yes, he can. And God, here's my prayer. Do it. He brings us out of the lament into a time of reflection. And then to a time of prayer and praise. And the psalm ends. Um, But we can't leave you there. Uh, If Paul Harvey was here, how about the rest of the story? Well, the rest of the story is that the haters were wrong. David was restored as king. There was a great battle. 20,000 people died that day in that battle. But David's ragtag men, his ragtag army beat back the army of Israel. And Absalom was killed. David was returned to the throne. He returned to Jerusalem. And he was returned to the rightful place he had as king of God's chosen people. But then the haters are always wrong. Job. Job, curse God and die. Wrong. Job was restored. Not just restored, but he was given back many, many times what he'd had before he lost it all. Nehemiah, the wall's going to collapse. Wrong. Nehemiah, the book tells us that that wall was built in 52 days. And the Bible tells us that the nations surrounding Israel were scared to death. They were terrified because they knew that only God could do that. Jesus, you can't forgive sins. You're not God. Wrong. He proved it. He proved he was able to forgive sins. He had authority to forgive sins. One day he cried out and lament, Father, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? But then after giving his life, after being crucified, he rose and he ascended where he went to his rightful throne. King of kings and Lord of lords. And we serve him this morning. He is able, he is capable of taking our laments. He is capable of taking all that we throw at him. Remember this. The Lord is the one who protects. The Lord is the one who lifts our head. The Lord is the one who gives us rest. And the Lord is the one who saves us. Feeling the need to lament? Lift up. Your help comes from the Lord.
Let's pray. Father, this morning, I don't know what needs, what hurts, what um, anger might be brought into this room. But I know, Lord, where we are, there are so many needs. There are so many here. Maybe, Lord, suffering with a family crisis. Lord, maybe somebody suffering with a financial crisis or a physical crisis or a spiritual crisis. And yet, Lord, you are more than able. You have proven yourself again and again to be a sustainer, to be a protector, to be a provider. And so, Lord, while we, while we cry out like David, while we cry out like others and, and lament, we want to turn to you. We want to lift our heads. Lord, we want to see you for who you are. Lord, help us this morning not to look down, not to look at the, the tragedy and the, the, the destruction around us, not to hear what others are saying, but Lord, to look up and to see you. Lord, we pray for those around our country this morning, especially in Charleston. We, Lord, give them your mercies and he says right here that you lift up our heads. I pray that you lift their heads up. May the Lord, they just sense your power and your love and mercy. And this morning, Lord, as they worship, may they just touch, touch the hem of your garment. May your spirit just come in a powerful way. And Lord, this morning, as we, as we close, Lift our heads. Lift our heads. Lift our eyes to see you for who you are. In Christ's name, amen.